there's a lot of layers to being a healthcare provider right now. And if I can play a small role into helping folks buy back their time or have another stream where they can work in an area that they care about rather than have to to pay the bills, there's just a lot of nuances that resonate with me. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome to the Surgeon Syndicate. This is your host, Mike McManus. And today we are here with Amy Silvis. Amy is the founder and principal at Silvis Capital, a real estate firm that offers commercial real estate opportunities to investors seeking strong returns and avoiding the day-to-day hassles. Amy also has a background in medical sales, so she's familiar with doctors and the lives they lead. Amy, welcome to the show. Oh my gosh, Dr. McManus, thank you so much for having me. This is really a pleasure. Well, welcome. It's great to have you here. So tell us a bit more about your background. You have a very inspiring story. Oh, that's kind. I love to start off by telling folks my age. I know a 42-year-old woman doesn't necessarily always enthusiastically share her age, but when I was born, uh, I was expected to live to be around eight or nine years old because I have cystic fibrosis. So when I was diagnosed around that age, that was about the life expectancy. Wow. So is that something you knew as a kid? I did. Yes. Back then in the 80s, before we understood cross-infection risk, the CF community did hang out in person and I had friends that lived with the illness and sadly, all of them passed. And yeah, I grew up very quickly at a young age, understanding my mortality. And there are gifts along with that that we can talk about. But yes, I was pretty well aware at a very young age what my fate would likely be. So what happened that then leaves you here to share with us today? (laughs) Gosh, a mixture of incredible providers at Children's Hospital in LA. And then of course, as I got older, I went to an adult care center, incredibly dedicated parents that understood the very little that they could do to influence the health of my lungs. I would throw in a mix of God, absolutely leading me down this path of health. And then four years ago, Vertex Pharmaceuticals came out with what I consider to be pretty much a miracle medication for CF that really changed the outlook of the illness and of course, my everyday life. So I stand on the shoulders of giants to say the least. Well, that's incredible. So four years ago when you were 38, so when you were already 30 years bonus time. Yes. So really, there's not a great explanation of that extra 30 years. Just you did some (laughs) of the right things that you could, but otherwise you were just gifted some extra time. Yes. And I think being very interested and motivated to understand the physiology of my illness, there are some really interesting things. You know, it's an orphan disease, right? Not a lot of motivation or money to do a lot of research. So There is a pretty robust CF community of especially maybe aggressive patients like myself that want to understand things like CF-related diabetes and how it's not diagnosed early enough and how it can result in very poor outcomes when it's not early diagnosed. So how can I get my (laughs) co-create care with my providers to diagnose earlier, treat earlier, stop feeding the bacteria in my lungs, all the sugar from my elevated glucose, you know, little things like that, little tweaks of being proactive and maybe being extra involved in my care, I think helped, but it's not the whole explanation. Wow, that's incredible. So 
It's interesting. So now I'm 54. And in that journey, I remember turning 50. And all of a sudden, you start looking at your patients and start going, okay, my patients aren't old people anymore. They're closer to my age. And when you're treating cancer in patients that are my age, so I didn't have quite the same younger life. But to over 50, I started seeing some of my own mortality a little bit more every day. And so it has changed kind of my outlook on how I want to live every day. For teenagers in your 20s, when most of us are feeling immortal, to grow up knowing that every day is a gift, how did that change how you lived? It's interesting because it did and it didn't. I guess I didn't realize that my outlook was that much different than my peers, other than I knew I had to live by a much more regimented life, right? Cystic fibrosis, even on this miracle drug, involves three plus hours of breeding treatments and chest physiotherapy and all that other things. So I learned at a very young age to organize my life discipline. And that was really the pay to play to be able to stay out of the hospital, right? To be able to stay out of jail, as I called it. So when I wasn't doing treatments or I wasn't in the hospital, yeah, I really wanted to squeeze the most I could out of life. But it also gave me a very strong focus on, and I think this is probably partly just how my brain works of if I want healthcare as an adult, pre-Obamacare, I needed a job. Otherwise, I'd be on state Medicaid. So that means I need to get go to a good college to get a good job. And so I was very focused in academics. And then also just, yeah, just enjoying hanging out with friends and family and appreciating the times when I was healthy because there was very little indication of when I'd have these awful exacerbations and when life would be put on hold. So it was not only my mortality, but it was the quality of life while I was alive that I had to really contend with and balance on that knife's edge. Wow. Like you said, you grew up very quickly. The responsibility you had to take on at a young age. So then you had a career, your early career was in pharma. And that's really, if you didn't know doctors well enough as a patient growing up with them, now you got to see their working life from that side. So tell me about that early career and the working in pharma. And I'm sure some of that came with your interest in biomedical research. Yes, it fit me like a glove, <laughs> as you can probably imagine. Pharma and then later biotech. I'm sure you can imagine growing up with an orphan disease, knowing that we were begging anyone, someone to take an interest in us and to drug develop. And then to be able to work in my career with medications, with patients with grievous illness, to be able to help them and their health conditions, their lives, what they were going through was enormously satisfying. I loved the science. Um, I loved the impact. I did do sales. I tried to do other types of roles, but my health and all the things I needed to do to basically stay alive prevented me. But the bonuses that I also got were to understand the inner workings of the healthcare system. Because as you can imagine, I see 16, 17, 18 different types of specialists on an annual basis, navigating health insurance, how to get drugs covered, hospital systems, advocating for myself. Where do the incentives lie? The bell curve that our physicians, right? Outcomes are not identical and being able to figure out how to navigate that. So there were a lot of really just intriguing rewards for my brain <laughs> and for satisfaction to impact people in need. And then also satisfy my own kind of curiosity and desire to continue to learn and feel like I was contributing to society. That's amazing. So then though you hit a point where you had to give up working as a job. Tell me more about that and how dealing with that at a young age, how was that experience? It was probably one of the most difficult decisions of my life. 
probably in these first few minutes, you and your listeners can tell, I love being alive. I love to savor everything life gives me and to enjoy my career and have to put it on hold at age 35 was something I dread. I understood again from a very young age, my ability to have a career and trade my time for money was likely not always going to be there. So when that day finally did come, it was probably one of the hardest decisions I'd ever made just from a quality of life standpoint. The idea of not having a career, I think to some people, retirement or medical retirement, like, oh, great, you can spend your days as you wish. No, (laughs) not for me. It wasn't my favorite thing. But again, it's a choose your heart or it was for me at the time. It's hard to not work and have that intellectual fulfillment. It's also hard not to be able to breathe. Choose your heart. I'm sorry to be blunt, but it's how I have to talk to myself about making decisions. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, and it is this interesting thing that sometimes we think about retirement as this like, oh, I made it to the finish line. And as you look into your future, it changes. A lot of people when they retire, if they're financially in a situation where they don't have to work, I'll hear them say, well, now I do the things I want to do versus the things I have to do. And that's a big shift. And that's really kind of what I call financial freedom, whether you're retired or not. And I think for a lot of people, it happens at retirement because they have a pension or something they qualify for at a certain age. But to be 65 before you gain that freedom, to me, was not ideal. I think I started down the journey. I remember when I turned 50 and it felt like this old thing. And it's like, you know what? I'm going to make this the best decade of my life. I look back and I had a lot of fun in my 20s because I didn't start medical school until I was 28. (laughs) So after I made this commitment, I looked back and I was like, wow, that's going to be really hard to do. The 20s, that's a high bar. And so it it took uncovering a lot and kind of changing direction in a lot of ways. And then it started picking up momentum and to where it was change was happening some that I wanted and some that I didn't, but balls started rolling. And so when you made this pivot out of working, is that when you turned to commercial real estate, to syndication? I actually did it almost 10 years prior. Again, knowing CF has cystic fibrosis has its pluses and minuses, one of them was I knew the future, right? I knew the progression of the illness. I knew the likely ultimate outcome. So I was really on this mad dash to figure out how to continue to support myself financially without being a burden on my amazing parents that had given up a lot of their 20s, 30s, and 40s to care for a sick child. I didn't want to have to turn back to them to ask for more financial support. They would kill me if they heard me say this. I've said this on so many podcasts. They would have helped (laughs) me, of course, but I wanted to figure out the recipe, right? I got my MBA from a top 20 program, thinking the bigger, badder job would allow me to stockpile cash and gradually pick away at it if I was too sick to work. And then that purple book that I think many people have read, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I read it truly a few weeks after I graduated from my MBA program in my late 20s. And a light bulb went off of, oh, this is it. This passive income thing, disconnecting, trading time for money is the answer. And I fumbled for about 10 years, mostly because of health struggles, to break into the industry So ironically, this forced medical retirement was the door that needed to be open of, oh, I've got a bit more stable health now. I can lay this groundwork down to be able to enter into this real estate game. And I came out of retirement after COVID and all that good stuff, and we were off to the races. 
That is so amazing. It's funny. I see this parallel with me, but yours is so much more compelling. Uh, I started through some burnout and knew I wasn't going to be a 70-year-old doctor. One of my partners and one of the founders of the practice I'm in now, he retired at 73 and he was still having fun. And it was more kind of being around to help out and not want to leave the practice. He yeah. didn't have to retire. He actually was ready to retire like 10 years earlier and stuck around because he was having fun and he was needed. But I was like, I'm not going to get there. I need to start, as you did, like building something else. Yes. Yes. And it's an amazing thing. Once you break that chain and you kind of go, wait, there's a way to let my efforts, maybe it doesn't pay as much now, but it kind of builds and capitalizes itself until it becomes something more and more and more and grows without you having to trade time for money to make it grow. Yes. So powerful. So now you took that experience of all the time you'd spent with doctors and you've seen this because you saw their life. And so a lot of your investors in Silver's Capital are doctors. Yes. Did that happen organically just out as if you were doing it? You were like, hey, what's up, Amy? What are you? And well, I've got this new thing and let me jump in. <laughs> yeah, I would say, you know, and I've got nurses, other healthcare professionals, hospital executives, that whole ecosystem. I think when you're looking to serve, which I know you are as well, and you think of who can you have empathy for? Who do you understand their goals, their fears, their you know hesitations, all of these things. I think how I talk to folks and how I'm able to kind of frame what we do really resonates exactly because of my experience. And I'm sure as you can imagine, I can't think of people on this planet that I'd rather serve than the people who have kept me alive. Yeah, I get kind of emotional talking about it because I try to understand what healthcare professionals are going through right now. And you mentioned burnout and you mentioned feeling unappreciated. And there's a lot of layers to being a healthcare provider right now. And if I can play a small role into helping folks buy back their time or have another stream where they can work in an area that they care about rather than have to, to pay the bills, you know, there's just a lot of nuances that I think resonate with me. So long answer to your question. I think it was intentional <laughs> for sure, just based on how I'm able to relate and the experience I have to understand. Well, that's awesome because I had this conversation yesterday. I was just like my little brother there, side story. He gets excited and like not all the words make it out. <laughs> so he starts skipping through. So I did that for a second. But I had this conversation yesterday where that's exactly what we talked about, that when you have to go to work or you have to be productive to meet quotas and or just to keep up with your partners and productivity. And I have to see. Yep. 30 patients a day or add these additional surgeries on at night and the joy goes away. I don't think anybody went into healthcare without some sort of a bigger motivation to do it. Yes. And the joy starts to go away. But then when you develop the passive income streams that you're like, wait, I don't have to work or I don't have to work full time. And now you have so much more control over your situation. It's a big deal. The number of docs I talk to who have developed this and they're like, I am enjoying medicine more than I have in years. When they started down the road, their goal is to get out. Like I'm done and yes. I have to develop this and they start investing. And then as the moment gets close to getting out, all of a sudden they're like, 
well, now I'm having fun again. I don't have to get out. And it ends up being a payback for some patients too, that the docs keep working. Oh, of course, of course. If we don't have happy, satisfied, motivated healthcare providers, we're in a world of trouble. And I think, yeah, whatever part we can play, like you said, in making people feel like they don't have to work, but they can and have that opportunity, that freedom can't help but result in really great things for the doctors and of course their patients. So for you, and you said you've worked with different levels with the nurses, with the doctors, with administrators. Are there any hospitals out there that like an integrated Silvis Capital retirement plan? <laughs> well, I think the interesting part, right, is because some of these people are my providers, right? So there's a little bit of a, you know, I think we try to keep some of those boundaries there because I do see so many stinking providers, right? So <laughs> I don't think I've taken down an entire hospital system yet, but I think to your point, there is something very powerful about myself mentioning what I do, but referrals, right? Other people saying, hey, this is something I've done. I've gotten great results. This is how I'm thinking about it and re referring others. So that to me is such an honor for someone to trust me enough and feel good enough to be able to, yes, mention kind of what I'm doing and give a referral. But yeah, as many people as I can help, I won't turn them away. <laughs> Maybe a whole hospital system one day. So how do doctors, because a lot of the stuff we talk about is doctors, when they come into investing in real estate, I found a lot of reluctance and fear because everybody's heard a story of some bad thing that happened in real estate. And as doctors, we tend to have like to have lots of control. What are some of the things you've seen that have kept doctors from investing in real estate and some of the things that have helped them get over that hurdle? I think one of the biggest things is, I mean, you don't get into medicine if you're not wildly intelligent, right? I mean, that's just what I've seen. That's been my experience. So there is this maybe phenomenon that I've seen of, hey, this might be new, right? There is an educational curve to go on. And after being an expert in what you do and being the knowledge expert and what you do every day, it can be kind of intimidating to be the one asking questions and not being the subject matter expert if someone is in that position. So I think that's held some folks back. We've combated that and helped people along the way by letting our potential investors dictate the speed and creating a very warm and non-judgmental space for folks to be able to ask questions as much as they need, as many times as they need, and giving folks as much time to analyze and get to know the space. This is not a $5 widget. This is a substantial investment. And to your point, physicians have worked very hard for this money and having the respect that it deserves of trusting us to be the pilot of the plane of this investment in this syndication, we take it very seriously and make sure we're there as a support or a guide rather than a decision maker or a enforcer, if you will. So what kind of educational things do you do as Doc starts considering it, but is reluctant, concerned, whatever word? What are some of the processes you have to help them reach a point where they're comfortable with it? Sure. And to your point, I think it's really dependent upon where they are in the process. If they're brand new to real estate syndication, commercial real estate, yes, there may be books, podcasts, resources there. Another great opportunity, again, as long as it's the proper kind of SEC designation, we let folks look at our current offerings, right? Without the intention of investing, but just understanding this is what this looks like, meeting with them one on one to answer specific questions. Again, in the exploratory phase. And we put on educational webinars several times a month 
whether it's basic terms in real estate all the way up to asset protection, how deals are analyzed. So we really try to remove as many barriers as possible to understanding and really equipping our physicians and healthcare providers to make the best decisions for themselves and their families. What would you say this a little bit, as my kids would say, out of pocket? Is the most memorable concern that somebody had for investing that caught you off guard? It caught me off guard. I don't know. Maybe I've been fortunate because I haven't... um, This isn't too out of pocket, as you would say, or outrageous, but I think personal liability of, hey, I'm investing in this and this is a large purchase overall for the entire syndication. If you all get sued or if the property gets sued, what's going to happen? But that to me isn't too outrageous. That sounds very logical. So I'm sorry, I don't have anything kind of weird or juicy for you. (laughs) That's okay. You know, it's a good one. And I think that opens up to some more discussion about what some of the questions people may have. And maybe we can answer some of these here to help people understand that. So we're going to wrap up this portion of our show with Amy. And she will be back and we'll have the second portion of this conversation in the next show. So thank you for joining us. Amy, thank you for being here. And please join us for the second half of our conversation. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better. So I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. And number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.